Here's a few words with Jesse Bond of Southwest Fire Academy. Okay, so why don't you give me the rundown on what's coming up? We have more exciting news as the heavy lifting continues. I'll start with the Forge. It's our new training prop. It's a two-story training tower for search, suppression, forcible entry, VES, you name it, which helps make our training as real as possible. And that's almost completely finished. On top of that, we have our props and tools being made in order to complement our NFPA 1006 machine rescue course. And that's coming October 21st with Andrew Bassard. Water rescue starts September 16th with Gord Raish. Uh, we've got pump up September 26th with Paul Kovac. And we have a volunteer boot camp, which is in partner with Grand Valley Fire Department. So it runs during weekends, and that's beginning October 8th. The deadline to register for this is September 23rd, and it's filling up. You can get details for it by contacting SFA. You do have to be an active firefighter to participate in this class. Also, we're really excited about Mike Tazarski. He's running his five-day trench rescue course from October 10th to the 14th and we have a hazmat technician class with Jordan Raish and that begins October 22nd and that runs over three weekends and then boot camp 48 begins on September 23rd it's fully booked but we're excited to start adding a higher volume of boot camps to our calendar which will take place next year so stay tuned for more updates on SFA we've got lots to come Hello, everyone. Welcome to Multiple Calls, Episode 52. I'm Scott Hewlett. There are many places you can push the body and mind to, but we can't escape the fragility of being human. You can go to extremes, but you can't live there, some briefer than others. Drop the oxygen level in the room and see how long you can tough it out. Your body continuously seeks to maintain a condition of equilibrium as it deals with external changes. Variables such as body temperature, pH, electrolytes, and blood sugar levels have to be kept within the homeostatic range. How is the mind any different? We understand how a lifetime of suffering is undesirable, but how is a lifetime of ecstasy any different? We need successes, joy, comfort, and ease, but we also need mistakes, frustration, discomfort, and challenge to have equilibrium. We discover ourselves through the experiences of surviving, living, and thriving. Among the many messages that my guest this episode offers so beautifully through his mediums, what stands out the most is the importance of giving oneself grace. As Augustine Burroughs once said, I myself am made up entirely of flaws, stitched together with good intentions. In the phrase tough love, there is both tough and love. Push yourself to grow and learn but don't hate yourself through it. Here's my wonderful discussion with Wayne Hanna. Tell me about where you grew up and give me the structure of your family and we'll start from there. My life was challenging from the second I came out of the womb, if that makes any sense. But I was adopted at a young age and then I was raised in Edmonton with my mom and dad who are still together and one sister who was also adopted that's three years older than me. I just had a normal childhood, as normal as it could be growing up in the 80s and the 90s. It was pretty stress-free. I wasn't an athlete. I didn't do, like, I, I never got into sports. Like, I don't even watch them on TV. But I had always liked being active, and I had always liked the team aspect of life. But I played a little bit of hockey in my military days, but I was really bad at it. 
Did you have hobbies or were you an avid reader? What did you fill that time with? I've never read a book in my life. I don't even <laughs> think I read the essentials until I was teaching at the college, but I raced BMX for about five or six years. That was it. I always wanted to be creative. Like my dopamine rush has always been either something adrenaline filled or creative, be it doing voices or writing little skits and scripts as a kid or just kind of being the clown. And that's translated through my entire life until now in my mid-40s, right? When did the military come into play? Did you go straight to university or college? Did you go right into the military? No. So I was in high school. I was in a program called the Integrated Occupational Program. So because I was diagnosed with ADHD at such a young age, my educational background was structured around having learning disabilities and struggling with certain things. But the one thing I've never struggled with was things that I was in love with. And for me, I always wanted to do two things, and that was to be a, a firefighter since I was three years old. I think we shared a picture on social media of me driving my fire truck pedal car and then 30 years later driving the truck that I'm on now, and I wanted to be in the military. So I joined the Army. I basically turned 18 in December of 1997, and February 1998, I was off to the Army. And I spent 17 years, I spent seven years in the army with the 1st Regiment Royal Canadian Horse Artillery in Shiloh, Manitoba. So I moved from Alberta at 17 to Manitoba where I was posted, did a tour to Bosnia as a young, like 19, 20 year old, and then had a wonderful career, but I had always wanted to do fire, like fire was my passion. So I remember in 2003, I got on this small town volunteer department in Carberry where I think my first structure fire, I still hadn't even done any training yet. And I, it was the old MSA 2216 bottles. You had to hold your breath to plug it in. And I was scared shitless. I was, my bell went before we made entry, if that makes any <laughs> sense. So, yeah. but that was to me the way I could transition from the military into the fire service at a young age. But I spent, sorry to back up, I spent a majority of my time in the fire service was a military firefighter. Mm -hmm. But yeah, mm -hmm. I left right away, young. I was right out the gate and in the military. So I've had a structured lifestyle like that now for 25 years, right? That just seems... I don't know, having been exposed to you now and, and seeing the work you're doing, it seems that you would thrive even better in like an unstructured life. Did you take drama in high school? Like, I'm wondering why you're not in Second City or something in that in drama. Like, well, how did you not end up in that avenue? I'll say this about the fire service. It's unlike anything else. Like I've had a lot of opportunities when I did stand up. I did stand up for about five years on and off with Yuck Yucks. And I had some great opportunities as a comedian. And there was a time in my life where I really wanted to go that route and I wanted it to pursue the entertainment industry. But at the core, this was my time as a firefighter in the military, at the core, I just wanted to be a rookie on a truck in a city. I just wanted to have bumper time in the morning. I just wanted to go grocery shopping with the boys. I just wanted to be on a truck in a city. So my brain has always obsessed about the things that I love doing and I always find a way to do them. But fire to me isn't stretching lines and fighting fires. Fire to me is I'm living the dream that I've wanted since I was three years old. So 
you could have offered me a job as a cast member on Saturday Night Live, I probably would have been super stoked to have it, but I would have secretly just wanted to be on a fire truck. It's weird. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But I think that that mentality is is really what keeps our culture and our traditions alive are the firefighters that have wanted to do it since they were three years old. And they're okay not doing anything else. But I found a way to be creative on the internet and still be funny and to still push out or create content. And that I'm fine with that. If you would have asked me 25 years ago, do you want to be a star in a movie or do you want to be a prominent human in social media or do you want to be on Ladder 5-2 with the city of Pickering? I tell you, I'd want to be on Ladder 5-2 with the city of Pickering. Did you have sort of the inside scoop on what it meant to be a firefighter before you got in? Because you're mentioning a lot of things that I, you know, you wanted bumper time, you wanted to go get groceries with the crew. That That's a lot of sort of inside scoop. So did you have that idea of what that was all about and that's what drew you in or what was what opened your mind to all that or your awareness to that? When I transferred from the Army to the Air Force as a firefighter, so my full-time job was as a firefighter for the Air Force. I mean, the structure is very much the same as the civilian fire service. The call volume isn't there and it doesn't feel the same. I'd always known that what the firefighter lifestyle was because it had been a dream of mine my, my entire life. But what I would do, so it's funny, when I was posted to Comox, BC, I was a young firefighter at an Air Force base. I think I got, in the three years I was there, I woke up once on nights for an alarms ringing call. Like, it's a very uneventful place. (laughs) My parents had just recently retired and moved down south for the winters. And I had been a paid-on-call firefighter in a small city called Comox, and they had a connection to the Phoenix Fire Department. And my entire Christmas vacation down in Arizona with my parents, I spent doing ride-alongs with Phoenix Fire. I did a ride-along and I got to work with like legends in the industry that were related to Brunacini and they were a part of the Brett Tarver call where, which really built RIT. But like I got to work with these people and I remember working this 24-hour shift at engine, I was at engine 18 or engine 918 And it was a busy station. They ran, I think that day they ran 20 some calls and I was in heaven. I loved every second of it. And that's when the dream of having bumper time and grocery shopping came alive was when I started running and doing these ride alongs with these big cities. So So when did you start trying to get on a full-time department back here at home? I got to an age when I was 34, I was living in Ontario. I was running my own crew at CFB Trenton. So I was an officer. I was a deputy platoon chief. So I essentially had my own truck and my own guys. 2013, 2014, I was going, okay, I feel like if I'm going to make the transition, buddies of mine had already made the transition out of the military into the civilian world. If I'm going to do it, I have to do it now. And it was funny because when I first attempted to go through a recruitment process, the written exam thing scared the shit out of me. Like I could not wrap my, I'm like, I can't write a, I can't pass these written exams. I like, they scared me. And I remember Whitby open and I had applied for them. I went and did the written exam. Didn't think I had passed, volunteered to go up to the Arctic through the air force for eight weeks and run the military fire compliment up there, get up to Inuvik. And within 48 hours of me being in Inuvik, the town of Whitby sends me an email, HR going, we'd like to see you for an interview. Well, 
I'm like, can we do it over Skype or can we do it over something? They're like, no, it's got to be in person. And I was really let down. Like I, I didn't go through the recruit process like a lot of firefighters do where they're applying for every department and they're just trying to get on a truck somewhere. I was really selective with where I wanted to go. I knew I didn't want to go to Toronto because I didn't desire that 3,000 member department lifestyle. I knew I wanted to go to a city that was progressive and growing, but at the same time where we weren't just a number because the culture is that important to me. Unbeknownst to me, the culture is thriving and huge in Toronto Fire, even though they have 3,000 guys and you start to see the culture lost in these smaller departments, right? But I was let down. Like I felt like when I couldn't interview for Whippy, I, I thought, I'm like, oh God, like that was my one opportunity. Like that was my shot. I'm done. Pickering opened six months later, said no written exam. You just had to go to York and pass the physical. And I'm like overweight and I'm going, okay, I'm going to do this. And I got on the treadmill. I went to York and to Gledhill Shaw or whatever they were. And Dr. Gledhill, whatever, his wife was a very cruel human being. I barely passed my VO2 max, but I did. And I was lucky enough to get an interview with Pickering and make the transition. But it was, I'm telling you, like it was one of those things where when you're 34, you're already working as a career firefighter for a decade. It was a scary, scary, scary transition. And it was a reality check too, because it's a different world in the civilian world. So what was recruit class like having had some experience for all those years and then having to start over again? Did you enjoy it? My first year on the city was the best year in the fire service. It was the best year of my career. I've been on the city going on nine years now. And that first year, and a big reason why I didn't go the acting captain route, and that is because I really reaffirmed my dream and it really reaffirmed my love for being on the trucks. I think that there's a lot of ego in what we do. So when you come with a background and you come with a little bit of experience, in our world, experience is better when it's not spoken about. Like I think that we get a lot of new recruits that come into the industry that have a volunteer background or or maybe they worked in the, not the structural world, they worked in the industrial world or they worked in the wildland world and they want to fit in. So to fit in, we talk about all the things that we used to do. And that was a big fear of mine coming from a world where I've been doing it for 10 years coming to this world, but it was a lot easier than I thought because of the guys that I went through with. Like I realized really early on in my recruit class that the six of us that got hired together, we all had our own experience and we all came from backgrounds that reflected the job that we were doing now. Two of the guys, one of the guys was a Barry firefighter that just wanted to move closer to home. A couple guys were paramedics. So I think that core group, those six guys that I went through with, because we had backgrounds going into the fire service, we really made it easy to not have ego take over, if that makes any sense. How'd you get exposed to instructing? And you mentioned teaching at the college. So maybe walk me through when and how that happened. So I started teaching adults in a first responder style world in 2002 when I became a first aid instructor through the army. And they would send me all over to these bases to teach first aid because I had this dynamic instruction away about me. And I had this love and this passion when I would talk about these things. And I had always known that I wanted to teach 
And I always knew that I wanted to be an instructor within the fire service. And as I grew in the fire service in the military and I was a supervisor, I did more training and teaching. So I would go to board in every year. Well, I went to board in one year and taught their structural portion. So I had all these students taking them into the live fire and doing that kind of stuff with them. But when I would teach, I found out that I didn't so much teach what the book said. I taught what the book said, but from our point of view. Like you can regurgitate the essentials or Jones and Bartlett or the company officer book or any book. You can regurgitate all of the information. You can know it cover to cover, but if you don't know it with your hands, then you're not going to thrive. We have book smart people that struggle on the fire ground, but then we have these wonderful firefighters that struggle with books, but they thrive on the fire ground, right? I really loved passing information on with that in my mind because I felt like there was more structure to the practical side of what we do because it's a very practical job. And when I moved to Peterborough, I had an opportunity. I applied for a, a contract job at Fleming College and I got the opportunity to teach there and I taught there for seven years right before the pandemic kind of hit and I thrived. Like I loved teaching these students, but I also saw a big problem in the fire service in our province and the fire service as a whole with how we're passing this knowledge on to these young up-and-comers. No, I definitely want to get to that. I want to start with still focusing on instruction. Like you strike me as someone that the core, the foundation of where you're coming from when you're teaching, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be that you would have a, a really good sense of a, a vibe of a group or meeting people where they're at and how to approach somebody to give them something so that they can grasp it. How accurate is that? Yeah, I think I have the ability to kind of see where people are due to my own struggles and my own trials and tribulations through getting through school and getting through the ongoing training we do on shift every day. Like I struggle with that kind of learning. So I feel like when I stand in front of a group of students or people that want to learn this art form is what I call what we do. I just teach them the way I would want or instruct them the way I would want to be instructed. So I kind of go at it with this assertive slash I'm kind, I'm 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 pretty intense when I teach. Um, not in a negative way, in a very positive way. My style of teaching is passionate. There's a lot of passion, but it's not ego driven. And I use that word a lot because I think that's a big issue with what we do. But yeah, I just teach these students. So when they leave, I'll put it to you this way. I say this to people all the time. I understand that we're at a different place in the world and we're not all three-year-olds that have wanted to be firefighters our entire, or we're not all people that wanted to be firefighters our entire lives. I understand that I have an 18 and a half year old son who's going, dad, I might want to be a firefighter because you work seven days a month and you make what you make a year. And they don't do it for any other reason than it's a good shift schedule and it's good money. I understand that and I'm cool with that, but don't wreck it for me because I don't do it for the seven days a month or the money. I do it because I am in absolute love with this industry and I and I love being a firefighter just like you and 90% of us. Don't wreck that for us. You can come in with your own goals and your own 
path in mind, but understand that we're still passionate about that. So show up 30 minutes before your shift, know how to operate equipment, know how to work as a team, know how to adapt and overcome to change because everything's going to change five or six times through each and every call that you run. And at least embrace this wonderful opportunity that you have to work for such an amazing organization. And I feel like when I teach, that is what is at the forefront of my instruction is that no matter what you do, no matter how much you care about this, there is so much culture and there's so much tradition and there are so many things behind the simple tasks of pulling a line or catching a hydrant or doing CPR or walking through a CO no medical call. Like there's much more to that than that. Like the culture is 95% of what we do, Scott, is the culture. Mm -hmm. Do you think people that come in without that drive that you're speaking about, do you think that they're able to be just as good at the job as people that approach it the way you do? Or is that the special sauce that's missing? And I guess second to that, are they missing out? Are they missing out on really, really experiencing the job because they're not coming in wanting the whole enchilada? I think we have a really good way of letting people know that maybe this isn't the industry for them at the pre-service level. I think that these youngsters coming into the industry are going to be fantastic firefighters. We have this wonderful ability still with the generations that are still on the floor to show the new firefighters what the culture is all about. And I believe that, one, we have a majority of the people getting into the fire service still have had that dream their entire life. And that 20 or 30% that are doing it for the pay and they're doing it for the schedule, they're still doing it. Like at some point throughout the recruit process or their first year, they're going to either get it or they're not. And there are people that don't get it, but there are people from your generation that don't get it. There are people from my generation that don't get it. I think it doesn't matter how you got into the industry, but once you're a part of this family, I just don't think mentally that you can walk away from it because it encompasses you. And and we do such a wonderful job as senior people on the trucks or senior humans on the trucks to to really show. I think we have more problems with people that come from other departments than we do with the people that don't actually want to do the job. You know what I mean? Like, I think that we all have an equal opportunity to make this the best job in the world. And I think we have to do a better job going through resumes and applications and finding the perfect people for the job. But that's hard too. You have 20,000 people applying for jobs in Ontario every year. 19,500 of those people want to be firefighters more than anything in this world. We're always going to get one or two that don't cut it, but they figure it out. We got some good people, man. Yeah, I definitely have an experience as, as a generational thing. Like, oh, these new kids, they all, like when you hear a generalization like that, that hasn't been my experience. We're still seeing people that are coming in as hard chargers and with all this passion and love for the service. But there does seem to be maybe more than before of the other approach. So maybe it's worth discussing for sure. I think at the end of the day, I mean, the people that we work with and the people that are getting into this job, they all have a passion for it. Just, you got to look at it like this too. There's a lot of discouraged people. These young people that went to school at 19, 20 years old that are now having to go work another job until they can get into a city. You have five years of no, that's going to take a toll on you. So 
I've had students that come into the program when I was at Fleming and they wanted to be fire more than I could ever imagine. And now they're doing something else because they just gave up on the hiring process because of some of the things that we do to hire standardized testing or whatever. Like it takes a toll. But once I think that it's the one career, everybody talks about how strong our union is. It's not our union that's strong. It's just you have millions of people that do this job that are in their dream job. That's why you see the IAFF sticker or your department sticker in the bottom corner of the windshield. Past when you retire, people don't rip that sticker out of their window because, man, we love it so much. Like I, I, I and it's I think not pride I, in the union; it's pride in the job. Yeah, the fire service, man. <laughs> it's 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 everything. Yeah. So you taught in the military, but when you got on full time with Pickering, like when did you start teaching at the college? pre-service did you continue to teach at your fire department how is that manifested that's a wonderful question because i didn't start teaching or not teaching doing training with the guys us at the department until this year i figured i'm going into my ninth year on the city we've had a lot of new people come in i'm kind of in the middle of the pack on my seniority on my shift so i feel like i can start having a voice more now because the way I fight fire and the way I pump a truck and the way I run medicals and the way I do those things is the way our city does those things. So I have stories every day about the military. I had a wonderful career. I've seen the world. I had a lot of fun. I did a lot of stupid things. So I share a lot of stories, but I never came at it, or at least I hope I didn't come at it. I'm sure it came through sometimes that I knew something or I, I wanted to teach something. I really just kept my mouth shut. I learned the job. A big part of why I didn't write my AC exam three years ago is because I still didn't think I was ready to be an AC because I hadn't experienced a lot of stuff that I would have to experience. I hadn't even experienced it as a firefighter yet. Time has nothing to do with this job. You could have be a firefighter for 35 years and, and have never done the job. Mm -hmm. The thing about what we do is that experience is, is every, you could have all the paper in the world, but doesn't mean you're a qualified training officer or qualified deputy chief or a qualified captain. You just have a lot of paper because you could pass tests. It's experience. It's cutting people out of cars and then taking that experience and then teaching people how to cut people out of cars. I taught outside the department because I do have a lot of knowledge when it comes to the fire service, but I didn't teach within my department because that's not the culture. That's not how we do. And I had a lot of learning to do before I started passing on knowledge. And I literally just started, all I do is run guys through pumper training because we know a lot about friction loss and we know a lot about this amount of PSI being gone with this, or if we put this appliance on this, and if we pull this lever, it does this, but we don't pump trucks anymore because we're so attached to that computer. We just hit pressure mode and we just walk away. When you and I learned how to pump with relief valves that we now get tunnel vision and I see all these guys pumping at fires and they're just standing at the panel staring. So I wrote a program within my department called the tactical movement of water. And it's funny because I hated driving up until the last couple of years, but it's all about setting up your truck and walking away and doing other things on the fire ground, changing bottles, but listening to your truck or doing entry control, but listening to your truck and not getting that tunnel vision. When I saw people getting that, that's when I was like, okay, I have this gift and ability to pump a truck successfully at a fire while doing other things I want to show people and do other things while pumping a truck. And that's really 
the only thing I teach at my department. Like, I don't need to get involved in the survivability stuff. I'm no good at that. <laughs> or the high angle stuff. I hate ropes. <laughs> and really, there's so much to cover that this is what we need, right? We need people to find that thing or one, maybe two things and go, this is my wheelhouse. This is what I can take on and add to the mix. I always had this thorn in my side when it came to training on like rope rescue and like our perishable skills, those technical level stuff where I'd assume the city that you're in, you guys have a tech rescue truck and you guys have a hazmat truck where we don't, we encompass all of it. We don't do so much has we bring in Toronto or we'll bring in Oshawa to do our has. But when it comes to rope rescue or water rescue, like we're responsible. We don't have dedicated trucks for that. But I would find when I was training or learning how to do ropes that you would always get not so much in the city that I work now but you would always get the guy that's like okay we're going to do we're going to talk about the stokes and we're going to rig it and we're going to do this and I need a volunteer so you'd watch one of your crewmates get in this stokes litter and then the instructor's going no I think it's like I can't remember and he's trying to like tie these knots and rig it. And you, at that moment, I'm like, you've lost me because you don't know what you're passing on. And if the second that somebody, an instructor doesn't know what they're passing on because the skill has perished in them, you have lost your audience. And it's the same with anything that you do in the mental health world or, or anything. Like when you've lost your audience, you've lost your audience. So I never wanted to teach those skills because I didn't have the passion to maintain them at an instructor level. However, with this, I have a passion about it. So I'm always going to deliver a good lecture around the operation of a truck, just like my buddy Steve is going to always deliver good training around water rescue and high angle. And we all have those people that we work with that have mastered that one skill but we also know the one person that's tried to master five or six skills and teach them all, I guess is the moral of my story, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you have to know 100% of what you're teaching to offer the 80% that's required. I think you're touching on it here, but you mentioned like your sort of your frustration or your view on how things are being handed over, how things are being taught. Is there more to that than what you just talked about? I just think that we're going through a massive change in the fire service. And we've been going through this change since 9-11. There's a lot that has happened since 9-11 in the fire service. And there's a lot that has happened when it comes to how we perform tasks on the fire ground, to how we deal with things administratively, or how we deal with things proactively around emergency preparedness and stuff. And that has added a lot of things to the plates of everybody from management down to the individual firefighter. There's been so much stuff introduced to us in the last 25 years or 20 years that I've been involved in the fire service. There's been so much when it comes to how we deal with or mitigate things that we have to deal with on an emergency response level that it has made teaching and training harder. When you got on or when I got on, we learned the nitty gritty part of the job. The job isn't safe. There's an inherent risk. So we learned our management, our risk management model. And that was kind of what we went on, right? We risked a lot to save a lot. We risked a little to save little. We risked nothing for nothing. And that was it. You pumped the truck. You did your rescue. You did good overhaul. You got a, a decent lost stop and you carried on. Well, now... Oh my God, there's 15 things that we have to do in between all that because of all the shit that has changed. So I think that we've just put a lot on our plate for a bunch of A-types to manage it. We should have it down to a science by the time something catastrophic happens again, right? Like our industry, we don't make change 
officially until something catastrophic has happened. That's just the life. Well, there seems to be a healthy drive towards guys wanting to simplify things again. And that it's getting complicated. People are getting overwhelmed and confused and lost. And there are a lot of people out there that are trying to distill it back down to at least tactically what it's all about. Like, I think maybe you feel the same way that the culture, it's, it's reassuring that the culture has maintained and lasted the way it has through all this. No matter what else is going on outside of it, it's still there. But I don't know if you've noticed that people are trying to really distill things back down to the basics, like you said, that we had when we first got in. Yeah, I think that we did. Like, I remember the city of Vancouver, like 10 years ago, you couldn't apply unless you had a university degree. So you can have an experienced, well-knowledged firefighter, and they would not be eligible to apply for the city of Vancouver because they did not possess a university degree. So now you have all these people that get into this job, they have a degree in whatever, which is wonderful. But when you go to university and when you do all of those things, your world is around research, your world is around finding many different ways to, or one way to do something successfully and that's it. But our job is, there's nine different ways to skin a cat. That is nothing more real than in our job. You have to be able to go from one mentality to another mentality in the matter of seconds. You don't have that opportunity to make things difficult. And I always say like a lot of people, you watch a lot of the things happen on the fire ground and it's just easy work made hard because we've overcomplicated so many things. Like at the end of the day, nothing has changed except how close our exposures are. But water supply has gotten better. Because water supply has gotten better, we've lost the art of drafting. And now houses are close together. We have to deploy more resources to mitigate a structure fire, where back in the day you had my subdivision. If my house started on fire, there's no exposures. And because we have all of that and NIOSH and OSHA and all of these other people doing their studies and, and stuff like that, like we've really complicated the job. We have taken the ability for our command or our officers to, to go from plan A to plan B because in between A and B, there's subsection one, two, three, four, five, six, right? And that's why we're losing more property and stuff like that. But on the other hand, it's good change too. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't talk about this stuff very often, man. I don't talk about fire often anymore. That's good. It's so a good break for you. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I've heard the term NFPA has been termed not fucking possible at all. <laughs> we just had a conversation about NFPA the other day. We're driving back. Our, I'm on a ladder and it's a 2013. So it's coming up on its 10 years. And I believe NFPA, there's an NFPA that states that talks about trucks, their lifespan is a 10 year lifespan. And we're like, this truck's still great. Are they going to get rid of it? Like we, I've been on the same truck for four years. I love my truck. I love everything about it, but I think we're getting a new one. And the one guy in the back goes, so is NFPA going to make us get a new truck? <laughs> and we kind of were like, no, I don't think so. I think it's just there because somebody once wrote an NFPA saying that trucks shouldn't be older than 10 years, but we'll probably keep this for five or six more years. Yeah, like NFPA, whatever. It's a cover your ass. So if there's a problem with the truck, we could say, well, we told you 10 years and you decided to keep it for an extra two. So it's your fault. Yeah, exactly. Do you think the complicating of the job, you talked a little bit about risk and the perception of risk. Do you think it's making people, like there's more fear in the job? There's more people that are more risk averse? that we're a little more paralyzed about what might go wrong as opposed to just being more positive about what we can do to make things right? 
I don't think at our level, at the career level, and I'm not knocking the volunteer level or the paid on call level at all. It's, it's needed and it's important. But I think for cities, we're still very aggressive in our tactics and what we do. I think we kind of weigh the risk after, <laughs> after we're rolling hose or packing up to go back to the hall. I don't think that it's gotten there and I don't think it will. I think we still have a level of experience that is second to none. Like the 25-year guys that's still being pushed, that mentality still being pushed. So I feel like we're not even close to shooting ourselves in the foot. Do you remember about 10, 15 years ago, they started talking about those extinguisher grenades yeah, and they were yeah. talking about like those space age helmets and going in and having robots do that stuff. Do you know how fast that was? No, thanks. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't automate what we do. No. You can't automate it. I think that will always stay. Firefighters will always be aggressive in how we mitigate. That's our personalities behind the job. And even with the 20 or 30% that are coming off the street where this hasn't been a life dream, they get taught that very quickly in their first couple of years on the job. And, and as long as we maintain that aggressive behavior, then you can have safety in the back of your mind and you can always make conscious decisions. Like we're not going to go screaming into derelict buildings and we're not doing it like Detroit. We're not making entry into everything anymore. And I think that's a good change within the fire service. I'm actually, I was sick and tired of going into buildings where we should have just gone defensive and going offensive when we know that there was nothing for us to do there. I like that change within the fire service. I don't think we need to go into everything, but I think that we'll still be aggressive in what we do for a hundred more years. That's the culture. That's the tradition. And that's why it's so important that we keep that is so we don't lose that aggressive mindset when we're on the fire ground. Yeah. I think it's safe to say for you, it's the same as the way I've spoken out before that the job has given me more than it's ever taken away. I mean, there's really no escaping the fact that the job is going to make things physically or mentally hard or add things, challenges that you're going to have to overcome. So early on, when we first started talking, you mentioned being diagnosed with ADHD as a kid. So maybe walk me through the arc of that journey. How was it handled back then compared to how it's handled now? How has your mental health, physical health journey been? And how has the job maybe added to that, uh, maybe in positive and negative ways? So I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 12 and I was medicated right away. But I was told consistently through my school life, my scholastic part of my life, that I was never going to go to university. I was never going to do those things. I didn't have the attention span for it. I was just going to live. I imagined in my head that I was going to be in the army for 25 years, but I could never let fire go. And I remember I would drive by when I would drive home from Manitoba on leave to see my parents when they lived in Edmonton, I would always drive through Vermilion, Alberta, which is where the pre-service program in Alberta was. And that was my dream to go there. And I remember it was 20 grand and I couldn't figure out how I was going to do it. But I, I had always known that these teachers said that I was never going to do the things that I dreamt of doing because I couldn't go to university or college. It would never leave my head. So ADHD to me is this massive superpower where you obsess about the things that you love and you could give two shits about the things that you don't. When every once in a while it kicks your ass because you are lazy as hell on occasion. But for the most part, ADHD has always been a superpower to me. 
And when I got on the job in the early 2000s, 2002 or 2003, I knew that I wanted to do this for a living. You know how when you get hired, you go, I'm gonna, I could do this till I'm 70. I remember when I did my interview and they said that you're forced into retirement at 60. I was like, never. <laughs> oh my God, I could, I could do this job at 70. I'm living a dream. And then you get on the trucks and you start working hard and you start getting older and you start having things happen to you physically. Like I, I did a lot in my military career. I used to jump out of airplanes. I worked with reconnaissance and sniper kind of detachments as a, in the artillery as an operate, like a forward observation officer. So I was dismounted, carried lots of gear, would jump out of helicopters, jump out of airplanes, would be lying in the cold for days on end and you beat your body up and now it's starting to catch up with me i'm off work right now i worked the morning on friday and i had to book off sick for friday i'm off until because i have some pretty nasty things happening in my neck with arthritis and arthritis in my hands and i need surgery on my neck and i've been dealing with it for three years and i'm so scared that i'm going to be off the trucks like now it's all starting to be real in the sense that there might be a stamp on what I'm doing for a living. So now I'm starting to think about maybe I do go into the training world, but I don't want to go into the training world because I can't listen to the tones and not be on the trucks. I don't want to go back on modified. I just would rather go back and tough it through, like give me a cortisone shot, let me tough it through because I would rather be on the trucks. I don't want to be driving the pickup truck for a month or two. I don't like my fears around my career or more not being able to do what I do anymore than the pain or the the discomfort that I'm facing every day. The fire service has given me everything for the simple fact that I got to prove all those people that said that I would never do what I wanted to do for a living, I got to do it. I was told by everybody except my parents that I would never do what I'm doing now. And I've been doing it for 20 years. I've defied all the odds against ADHD. When I did that, I, I had always gone into this job going, I understand that I'm going to be a part of things that are going to stay with me forever. I know that I'm going to do things that are going to possibly hurt me or kill me, but I'm never going to take them on personally from a mental health standpoint. And we do, but I'm never going to take them on personally because these people are calling us during their worst times. We never put them in that situation. We're just there to help and we're, we're there to get them through it the best that we can. So the mental health side of fire, like I don't hold on to my post-traumatic stress stuff that I have going on is not based around the calls that I've ran or the things that I've seen. So I've been able to stay healthy uh, mental wise, but my mental health struggles are literally because I might have to leave the trucks in the next five or 10 years. And that scares the shit out of me, man. I don't, that scares the shit out of me. Like to go days, straight days. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you just start ignoring it. <laughs> Hope it'll go away. I have opportunities to leave. I'm starting to get ready to speak full time or not full time, but speak in a mindset or motivational capacity. And I'm writing a book and I have a podcast that we're doing okay with. And I do have other things, but my biggest fear around doing those other things is that I won't have, I won't have the patch. I won't have the patch, man. That patch is, it's huge. It's really tied to identity, but it's, it's great that you do have identity outside of the fire service. I think there's a huge benefit to that, but it's really hard to leave that main identity. 
my dad's been retired for longer than he was on the job now, and he still identifies with it. It never goes away. It never goes away. And you know what? There are those people that pepper their vehicles and stickers and they wear t-shirts everywhere they go and we rib them and we make fun of them and and we jab them to their face because you know what like we get it we get it like you can sit in front of 150 firefighters and go you cannot let this job define you you've got to let this job humble you but you're lying through your teeth because everybody on this job to go back to what we talked about with the young people coming in it doesn't matter who you are this career defines you as a human being. You could have a million other side things and you could be doing a million other things, but it defines you and it's a good thing. It's okay to let this define you because if I'm on a truck with you, I would die for you. Vice versa. It doesn't need to be talked about. We don't need to talk about the risk we're willing to take for others because we know it because it defines us. I'd love to go out that way. Just name like a hockey arena after me after. Because I, 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 I don't like sports. So I would like like the Wayne Hanna <laughs> arena or something. <laughs> As a little tongue-in-cheek nod to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned your outside interests and you mentioned the podcast, which I want to definitely want to get to. But maybe to stay with the mental health aspect, you've talked a lot about anxiety and depression and mental health through social media. So maybe talk to me about how the IG page, Good Morning Assholes, got started and what that experience has been like. I'll start by saying I did not want to do anything on Instagram, like TikTok. I really enjoyed TikTok and that's kind of where I built my community. But so I did stand up for years and I got to do stand up with Russell Peters in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and stuff like that. So I had always loved creating comedy or content. And when TikTok came about, I just started creating one day and I had a blast and I stayed at the same place for a long time. And then I had been struggling. So for the last five and a half years, I have been in this mental health struggle. I lost my best friend who was on the job. He took his life in 2017. Paul O'Brien was one of my closest friends. We were on the same shift. We worked well together. He was diagnosed bipolar at a young age, managed to manage it throughout most of his life. And then it just got the best of him, you know, and we started to see him fade at work and go to this different place. And he ended up taking his life. He called in sick. I remember we were upstairs. I was watching my iPad or TV in, in the bedroom because I don't watch sports with the guys. So I always like go off to my own space and watch Below Deck or Big Brother or one of my really masculine shows, which they're not (laughs) at all. Well, they watch their sports and my captain comes over the PA and he goes, everybody in the kitchen, the chief and the president are here. And I was like, what the hell? I'm like, I didn't go on to any sites that we weren't allowed on (laughs) as a joke. And they sat us down and our chief, he retired this year. He goes, we've lost Paul. Like, Paul took his life. And it was the first time I've lost friends before. I've lost people in Afghanistan, like friends that went to Afghanistan, stuff like that. But nothing took me to my knees like this. And I feel like that was really my first rock bottom that I hit. And I suppressed it because I was going through divorce. I suppressed that. And then I suppressed this. And then I suppressed another thing. And then anxiety took over and my mental health just started to plummet. And two Christmases ago, I work most Christmases, just that's the way our shift falls. Being a single dad and having my daughter half of the time, 
it's, it was starting to take a toll on me in the sense that Christmases, I would get her for the day and then I would take her back to her mom's because I worked on Boxing Day or I worked on Christmas Eve or something like that. And it's not the job's fault. I love being at work. But one Christmas, just one thing led to another and I was sitting in my garage and uh, I was doing the one thing I hated the most and I said it at the beginning of this episode and that's tying knots. And I was tying a knot. And I was staring at a, at a hook that I put in my ceiling for some girl to store her canoe. I was dating at the time. I put these hooks and I knew they were in the truss, so I knew it would hold my weight. And I was there. I was at this place where I was like, I, I don't think I could do this anymore. It was weird because I was at this place where it wasn't like I can't take what people are doing to me anymore. I never blamed anybody else for where I was. I was always accountable for my shit. I just did not know how to get out of it. Like I did not know how to transition from such a low place, uh, such a rock bottom and thrive. I, I just didn't think it was possible. And I remember looking at the rafters and looking at this hook and I was like, yep. And I said, fuck no, I hate tying knots. And I didn't even know how to tie. I didn't even know. I was like, will a bowline hold me? Maybe I could do a figure eight follow through. I was going through my four basic knots on the one thing that I loved more than anything in this world, and that's being a firefighter. I was using the one thing that kept me whole and the one thing that made me feel alive. I was going to use it to end my life. And at that moment, I just started laughing and I said, man, you're way too rad for this. Like you're, you've done some cool shit. You're, you're your own worst critic. Nothing you ever do is going to be good enough because you're your own worst critic, but you can do this. You can make something out of this. And, and I had always had this, this dream of being some sort of celebrity. I don't know why. I just always liked spotlight. I've always loved it. And it was at that moment I threw the rope down and I said, no, no, I'm going to fucking do something that is going to make me feel whole. And I went to the doctor. I got medicated again for ADHD because I had been off it since I was a kid. That changed things. I went on medication for my anxiety. That changed things. And I just started posting these good morning assholes messages. And it wasn't to give people advice. I could give shit about giving people advice. I don't want to give anybody advice. I want to resonate with human beings. There's enough advice in the world right now. We need to resonate. And because the power through perspective and the power through resonating with another human being will trump, or no, I fucking hate that word, sorry, will um, we'll overcome. Yeah, will supersede any kind of advice you will ever get from a life coach or something like that. And it was keeping me accountable for the advice that I was giving myself. And I just kept going and it kept growing. And then people started recognizing me in the street and they started wanting to take pictures with me. And producers from Hollywood are reaching out to me to make TV shows. And, and I meet my best friend who's an actor in Hollywood. That's who I do my podcast with. And his wife is a super famous actor in Hollywood. And all of these things are happening to me. And it's all because I looked at that ceiling and I laughed and I finally said to myself, man, you're pretty fucking rad. Like all it took was a moment where I saw me for me and I was able to humble myself and get back to a place where I was able to thrive again. My platoon chief who will listen to this episode, my platoon chief that I work for, he retired last year and my fire chief now started following me on social media and they were going, 
like Wayne, we've seen so much change through you. Like I'm good at what I do for a living, but I struggled mentally. So it was really affecting would do good at calls, but I would be disconnected and distant in, in and around the hall. And now I'm not like, sure. I'm annoying the shit out of the guys and they're super supportive with the social media thing. They're super, super supportive about it. But like I was annoying them with my, Ooh, look at me. I'm a, you know, cause the ego from being a, a well-known creator was starting to get to me, but it all started because I, I needed to make a change. And, and the only way I know how to make a change is with a boom. Like I can't make little change. The world needs to know about it when Wayne changes. So <laughs> I think it kind of just started that way. And it's still new, man. Like I'm only a year and a bit into it. Like, I haven't even grown yet. It seems like it's meant to be. It seems so natural and right. I think anything that you do in your life that you're meant to do will be natural and right. It all comes down to doing the things that you dream of doing because you're going to put your best foot forward when you're doing something you dream about doing. Over 20 years of working between the military, 25 years between working in the military and as a firefighter, I've never been late for work once. That's because I love what I do and it deserves that respect. It deserves us showing up and it doesn't matter if it's a half hour before your shift or with your mental health through being proactive, not reactive look at our uniforms like we have to show up for what we do or else it's just not going to work well and that's how i look at my mental health journey that's how i look at my professional life that's how i'm learning how to look at relationships like all kinds of stuff you have to show up for you to be successful in it so why the title good morning assholes how'd that come about <laughs> i don't know it's like easter yeah easter's april right mm-hmm I struggle with when holidays are sometimes because we're either working or, or whatever. So yeah. So April, I just had got up in the morning and I wanted to put something on the internet. So I just said, good morning, assholes. I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs> and a couple of people liked it. And then one person got mad and then I did it the next day and the next day. And now I will skip, like I didn't do one this morning. But for the most part, for the last year and a half, I have done a good morning assholes message every day between Monday and Friday or seven days a week at some point. I don't write anything. I don't think about it until I'm about to say it. I got caught up in the whole getting lights and upping your content quality. But my girlfriend the other night said, Wayne, you know we loved you when you just had your phone and you said what was on your mind with a cup of coffee. So... I'm just going back to that kind of style of creating right now. I'm going to do more stuff in the YouTube world with our podcast. But the Good Morning Assholes was just, it's a way to connect with people. We're all assholes. It's a term of endearment. And you would see the saying in these stores and nobody used it. So I was like, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to start using it. And then it stuck. Yeah. It's very so, fire service culture too, right? Eh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we can't use some of the other words we use. No, no. Hopefully we don't lose that one too. I don't, I don't even want to talk about it. Yeah. So you yeah. mentioned the podcast. So now walk me into how that came to be and what that's meant to you and how that's changed how you view your life in the world. Last May, a producer from Hollywood reached out to me. His name's Michael Bloom. He was an instrumental part. He was a network exec for TBS and TNT, but he worked for MTV for years. He's responsible for putting like the Impractical Jokers on television, James Corden on television, like a lot of big names. He was doing a show at the time called Shaq's Life with Shaq and his friend Samuel L. Jackson was the narrator. So he was a, he's a prominent figure in the Hollywood world. 
And we had got to chatting, he had reached out to me and we had got to chatting about maybe working together in the future. And I had got encompassed about, I wanted to create a TV series where I would go around and hang out with people and kind of share like what they do to stay mindful and the crazy things we do to stay mindful, not like your yoga and meditation. I mean, goat yoga, if we're doing yoga, like all these crazy, crazy things. At that same time, I had met the guy I host with, Alex Scooby. We met on TikTok and Alex's wife is Mo Collins. So she played like Stuart's mom on Mad TV and Lorraine on Mad TV and she's in Fear of the Walking Dead and Alex was uh, on King of Queens for a long time. He played Doug Prezan, who is Carrie's boss. And I had thought, maybe I'll interview Alex because we're becoming friends. So I reached out to Alex. I said, listen, I want to interview you for this show idea that I have down there. And he goes, man, I'd love it. Let's do it. So we started talking about interviewing for the show. And then one day I was at work and the guys were, I was trying to have a conversation with Alex and the guys were in the back yelling at me. And cause we're big on the harassing each other at work thing. Like my, I'm on a very, I work with the, the greatest, the greatest three guys on the planet. A healthy wolf pack. Yeah, a very healthy wolf. I wouldn't say wolves. I would say we're more like bears right before hibernation. But <laughs> I was on the phone with him. I said, why don't we just do a podcast instead? Screw all this Hollywood stuff. Let's do a podcast. And he said, let's go. So a couple months later, we it started as the More You Know podcast. And we were doing our episodes once a week. And then it turned into the ZenAF podcast because ZenAF, he was using that term on social media a lot and it kind of resonated with us. We changed it to the ZenAF podcast. We animated for a while, but we've done an episode every week for the last year and two weeks. We talk about absolutely nothing but all of the things at the same time. We don't talk about what we're going to talk about until we're recording. And we're still fledgling. We're still trying to figure it out. We're on the charts one week and then we're off the next. And like you're going through these ups and downs. We're trying to figure it out. But when you record an episode and you stop recording and you're editing, it doesn't matter if you're making money. It doesn't matter if you're, we have tens of millions of viewers or downloads a month. It feels the exact same way. And I'm not saying this because this is, uh, no, maybe I am. It feels the exact same way it does when you're dragging your ass at work in the morning and then the tones go for something and you're no longer thinking about any of the other things that are going on in your life. You're thinking about what you're going to do on that call, how you're going to get through that call and what you're going to have for dinner. That's the exact same thing this podcast is doing for me. I could care less where it goes as long as we're creating content. And I love, I love the podcast. We got, it's funny too, because we got picked up Dean Blundell, who's become a decent friend of mine over the last year, loved our show and brought us into their network. And now we're off on our own just because the logistics behind podcasting, as you know, is pretty intense. Like we've had a lot of fun opportunities and met a lot of wonderful people and, and we have a lot of fun creating. We animate it sometimes. Like we just have a blast, man. And it's nice to talk to somebody who's crazier than I am because Alex is a, is a fucking mess. <laughs> he got- played a firefighter on ER, so he knows oh, our no way. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Scooby's a great last name. I love that last name. Wish yeah, I could steal good- it. He's a good dude. I'm trying to convince him to come up to Canada for a bit. So. Oh, has he never been? 
No, he's never been. He's from New Jersey. He's been in Los Angeles for the last 25 years acting. He's a big voiceover actor. He was the voice of Goodyear, the voice of Lowe's, the voice of Porsche for a long time. They've got a lot of work down there. So coming up to Canada is hard. <laughs> Have you gained new connections and new friends in that at work through this? Have guys contacted you? Has, has it become a topic of conversation? They're generally curious about what's happening, but I talked about it so much over the last year that I think that they're sick and tired of hearing about it. But for the most part, yeah, like like I said, I've been at the same station for four years. So you don't, I don't get to see guys from other shifts and other halls that I know or that I used to see when I was moving all the time as a, as, as a junior guy. So when you run into them, if they come to the station to act, you talk about it for a bit, they want to know what's up. But I think it's just for the people that didn't really know me at work, they've gotten to see a different side of me. So it has helped build a few relationships and friendships with people that I wouldn't be friends with or whatever, because we're on different shifts and we just have never gotten to know each other. So it's been really good. Yeah, it's been really good. We talked a lot about culture and how it's still surviving and seems to be thriving. And you've talked about the connections you have within your own station and your crew and how great that is. Maybe touch on the idea of the family, the fire service and brotherhood and that for me and how you've seen that change over the years. Or if you've seen it change, do you think it's still a thing? I think that a lot has changed just in the last three years when shift parties had to be shut down because they didn't want us getting together because of the pandemic and our call volume went down. We were getting more quiet nights at work, so it wasn't what it used to be. It's funny because you have a couple close buddies that you might not be on the same truck, but you're on the same shift and on our commutes home we always talk and have these phone conversations about the culture and and about is it going away and what's happening and how do we rebuild what we think we've lost. And I know our world will understand this statement. When I say it to my girlfriend or whatever, she, she kind of gets taken aback. But our culture does not thrive unless we're working hard. We know an inherent risk in our job is no calls. Like that's the real risk at our job. When you go from running eight to 12 calls a shift to running two calls a shift because of COVID or whatever it is, or like your protocols have all changed and all these SOGs that are coming out around PPE and health and safety and how we deliver medical care or what we're not on anymore. When we get, when that's all taken away from us and all we have is the time in the station, it's fine for a bit, but it really takes a toll on you. And my shift, and this is the thing that kind of affects like non-first responders, they'll go, what do you mean? We need a fire. We need to work. We have too many new guys on our trucks on my shift right now. I think we have six or seven new guys on the trucks, guys and girls on the trucks that have not fought fires with us. And we need to fight fire because when you're packing up and you're going home after you've worked, your ass off. The culture's there. The hugs are back. Kudos are back. The esprit de corps is back. It all comes back. And I don't think it's changed. I just think that we're not getting the jobs that we used to get. We're not getting that opportunity to work with those new people that we're not sure about yet. We need to do our job. And it's unfortunate that other people or businesses have to pay for that with their loss, but we need to do our job. And that's what keeps our culture I hate every hour on the hour throughout the night, but I love nothing more 
than every hour on the hour throughout <laughs> the night. I love getting home and dragging my ass all day. I'm not the type that goes to bed after a shift. I can't do that anymore. I just go to bed early at night. But I love when I'm super busy, even though I hate it when I'm super busy. <laughs> and I, I believe yeah. that the culture is around that earning your paycheck that day. Not a lot of people will ever get to experience. And it's the one thing that we get to experience that is is more magical than than anything else in this world. So I think that, yeah, I think that our culture is fine. We're just not as busy anymore. Yeah, we don't want bad things to happen to good people, but when they do, we want to be there. Heck yeah. I've talked about this recently, the number of guys about car accidents, where, again, we don't want car accidents to happen to people. This That's not the point, but... I was trying to frame for some newer people that when we used to pull up for car accidents, even 10 to 15 years ago, and they looked bad, they were bad. But now with the changing safety features in vehicles, you show up to a lot of calls and the call looks bad, but it's not bad. And people are actually out walking around, which is an amazing thing. It's, it's great, but you're right. You're not in there using the skills and doing the work as often anymore, even in that regard. I work between my stretch of 401 is right where the collector starts. So I work between... 401 and Wesney Road to 401 Port Union. Like my station is about three blocks away from the Toronto border. So we're on the 401 a lot at MVCs. And on the 401, that big stretch of highway, they're mostly just into a guardrail or spun out or their damage is pretty bad, but people are out walking around. But I don't mind that. I'm not a big fan of car accidents for some reason. Like I don't mind using the tools and cutting people out of the car, but if I just have to put Absorbol on fluids for the rest of my career, I'm all right with that. But some guys thrive. They really just, they love pulling out tools and flopping ruse and, and, and do with it. I'm, I'm good with just, do you want me to disconnect the battery captain? Okay. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if any calls have stuck with me over the years, they haven't been the fires, they've been the car accidents. Those have been, yeah. been the harder ones to process. It was more of just trying to frame for the newer guys about, I've just noticed a shift. I just noticed a shift and it's a good shift. It's a good shift that it's not happening as much unless it's like a really difference in size or it's super high speed or it's a T-bone. Really, most accidents aren't aren't a big deal anymore. It's more actually the traffic and everything surrounding that and people driving through accident scenes. So I, I kind of feel sometimes that the accident scenes are more dangerous than the fires now. But it's mostly just the drivers around the scene, not necessarily the scene itself. But it's just been a, a shift I've noticed. Yeah, I think too, like when it comes to car accidents and stuff, like any calls that we run with the younger generation, it's not so much for me trying to motivate the people that I'm working with. It's kind of trying to slow the younger generation down, like take a deep breath. We have some guys that just run to everything. They want to be, they think everything's catastrophic and bad. So we go to these car accidents where the door might be stuck, might have to pop their door, but there's no life threat. But yeah, they're like so packed with energy and adrenaline. They don't know how to use it. They don't know how to like flush that adrenaline before like they puppy. get on Like a puppy, you got to get the, the energy before you can train them. Yeah. So now they're up at this car going, oh, we got to get them out. We got to do this. And the, like the lady or the guy sitting in there going, what's happening? Am I going to die right <laughs> now? Like, yeah. It's like slow down. So these fender benders, they're kind of helping. So when we do get those gnarly accidents where there is, and we still get them. Mm -hmm. And they are the only calls that stick with me too. Mm -hmm. Like fires, I couldn't tell you, but I could tell you about every really bad accident I've gone to. Do you feel like you want to, at your department or in the fire service in general, take this approach to speaking about mental health or life perspective? Do you feel like turning it into anything and doing anything in the fire service with it? 
or do you like that it's separate from that? I'd love to be a speaker because I do have words to say and I do have things that will help people. And I have built a community of a quarter million people so far that do want to hear what I have to say. But for me to do it, the union just put out an email the other day, actually. They're looking for more people in the peer support world to be a part of the peer support team that we have. And I thought about it for a second. I'm like, that's not the place for me because that's what is going to create the thing where I need the peer support. So I do want to keep it separate from Pickering, but I would love to speak to departments on my own. But it comes down to this again, because the financial gain from being a speaker is pretty fantastic, I guess. But I've said this since I decided that I was going to speak. I will never speak for money to a fire department. I will never speak for money to any first responder agency. So that will all come. That would be the philanthropy side of what I do is I would like to speak for the first responder community just for free because it's where my heart is. It defines me. But I don't think I would ever, if if Pickering asked me to speak, I don't think I could stand in front of the guys and speak because they've seen me go through everything, you know? And I can imagine, I can imagine just me say, hey, okay, Pickering, I'm going to speak to you guys motivationally. And they would all just sit there and go, this is going to be fucking hilarious. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be good too. Yeah, true. <laughs> we need hilarious, especially now. Yeah, especially now. Where are you at with the Petrocanada thing? And Are you allowed to talk about it? There's nothing. I had my second audition and it is the most cutthroat, man. They came on Zoom. They liked my first audition. I sent in the tape. They loved it. And to be considered to be the face of that for a year in its own right is a cool experience. And I'm fine with that. But the second audition, I get on the camera. The director's there. Super nice guy. We went through a mock kind of interview of how it would go on the show. And they come back. They're like, okay, thanks. Take care. and Just hang up on you. What? (laughs) Yeah, that's it. So I'm like, I'm calling Alex in Los Angeles and I'm going, is that what it's like? He goes, oh yeah, man. I just had an audition where they made me stand in front of my camera, show what I look like head to toe, and then they were gone. He's like, that's the business. So yeah, you're a commodity. At the end of the day, you're a commodity. I've done some fun things in TV. Like I was on a TV series in 2010 that was on Netflix and I wrote a TV series based around the fire service where we had pitched it to a couple production companies. And this is 12 years ago. I wrote a show called The Rookie where I would go around and live with fire departments, but I would run calls with them and we would see kind of the cultural side of what we do and their biggest fear, the product and like E1 Entertainment and Paperni Films and Cineflix, all these big companies, their biggest fear, they're like, well, what if you don't get a fire and a shift? Then what? What's the episode going to be about? Do they understand that you can't see when you're in there anyways? So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the fire shows you can see everywhere. You, and you have to see their faces. Their masks are lit up. And yeah, yeah it's a different exactly. world. Yeah. yeah, it's not Ladder 49. No. Tell me about the book. So I'm writing a book, and it's called Squirrel, The Chaotic Brain's Guide to Self-Love. And it is a coffee table reader. You're going to open it. There's going to be like three or four pages with nothing on it. And then there's going to be a random thing from me. That's just how my brain works. I found a cool way to love myself, man. I found a way to love myself where during that process of self-love, I'm still riddled with anxiety. I still don't get full night's sleep. I still have chronic pain. I'm still my biggest critic. But it's okay to be all of those things. And in fact, I want us as humans 
to go through those emotions. I just don't want us as humans to be so fucking hard on ourselves when we do. Well, that idea of self-love, you want people to yeah. have this idea of self-love and do it in a, they can do it in a messy way. You got to do it in a messy way because that messy shit's the shit that humbles you. We spend so much time when we go through hard things in our lives. We go through, we, we spend so much time trying to get from a negative place to a positive place that we miss the fundamental place, which is in the middle. And that's a humbling place. You can have, everybody has nasty things happen to them. It doesn't matter who you are, how fit you are mentally, physically, something tragic is going to happen in your life or there are going to be events in your life that are going to change your structure as a human being and that is okay but be humbled by it don't go everything doesn't need to be a rock bottom everything doesn't need to be the worst case scenario and when you try to go from a negative place to a positive place you will get positive for a couple months and then you'll be right back there because you're still catastrophizing everything it's getting to a place where you know that when sh when like when my anxiety is ripping or I'm in a low, I just give myself grace now and I say, fuck, it'll go away when it goes away. I just create boundaries for myself and other people. And I don't talk about male mental health very often. I talk about human mental health. I feel like it doesn't matter your gender or whatever, but men, we have been taught to suck it up and to get through it and get over it or not to get through it, but to get over it, suck it up, get over it. Suck it out, you know, don't be such a, you know, and, and we've done that for so long that we've lost the art of being vulnerable and looking at our buddies with tears in our eyes and going, I can't do this right now. Like I need that space or I need that help or I need that push to get to a place where I'm able to thrive. And I feel like writing a book like this and showing people that there is, like you said, a messy way to, to love yourself I feel like that will fix a lot of things. It'll let us know that not everything has to be absolutely fucking horrible. We do need that heavy, heavy grit to do the job, but I think people pin it to that's the only way that you can survive is if you are living in the grit perspective at all times. And like you're saying, it's not sustainable. And I don't think you're the most effective person you can be. I like the idea now of having the foot in both worlds with other people and with yourselves where there is a time for suck it up and there's also a time for like you said grace and peace and compassion and love and self-empathy and you're actually a more effective firefighter and a better human being if you can learn to live in all the places on the spectrum and not just be pinned on one or the other but we learn that from each other how many jobs do you know of where you talk to your supervisor outside of work to find out how the shift went that you missed or and then you talk for an hour about your mental health that happened to me this morning this morning i chatted with my captain for an hour because we're both struggling right now but because we have each other's backs and we're the four of us are so tight like we teach each other how to get through these things and we teach each other how to accept the things that are happening to us and because of that, it does make it sustainable. But at some point, you have to go out and you have to do it on your own because it's not sustainable forever. You need to be in a place, like you said, you need to have your foot in both worlds. But when your foot is in one world and not in the other, you need to be vocal about it and say, hey, I'm not performing I'm the perfect example. I went to work Friday and we had to do our medical research for CPR. We had to do two minutes of chest compressions. I had to tap out after a minute because I just couldn't. The pain was too bad. And I looked at my boss and said, I got to go home sick. 
And I had been I'm supposed to be off work, like my doctor wants me off work now, but I keep going back because I love it so much. But there was a point the other day where I realized I'm not effective. And because I am not effective and I am not able to do my job, I'm putting others at risk. I'm putting myself at risk, but I'm putting them at risk more. And they're now having to pick up my slack and my weight. And there's four of us on a truck. And our joke is that means we only need 25% of the knowledge. And between the four of us, we'll come up with a solution. But that 25%, if you can't give that 25% to that truck, guys are going to pay for it. And that's not fair. So it's having the ability to go, okay, things aren't working right now. I need to step back. I need to get healthy. I need to get right. So I can give you that 100% or that 86% that we like to give. 86, I think it works out to 86.435%. And then, <laughs> it's science. That's science. <laughs> that's science. That's yeah, science. Yeah. Yeah, that idea of a foot in both worlds, I mean, that would just be like where you set an ideal goal overarching if you had to look at averaging it all out over the years that you balanced it out. You have to be okay with moving on the spectrum. And that's self-aware. I think it's just self-awareness piece. That's what we're talking about, right? And then making it, you're vocally and outwardly making it known that it's okay. I think we're all just looking to know that it's okay. Right. I think we all want to be able to be vulnerable when we need to be vulnerable, but we need that message that it's okay. It's fear-based. Living in the suck-it-up world at all times, really that person is living in a place of fear. They're afraid that if they let their guard down for a moment that... I don't think it's just a how they're going to be perceived is going to change. I think maybe they think they'll lose their edge, that they won't be able to be that effective ever again because if they stop white-knuckling it, it'll be gone forever. Like in the ether, it'll just be gone. So... I think you need that experience of knowing that you can soften, you can take a rest, you can have some grace and self-love. And if you need to, or if you want to go back to that harder place in the moment, if the moment it presents itself, then you can. And as long as you know you can move across the spectrum, I think that's where the peace comes from. Yeah, man. I think that my struggle is that I'm at my best when I'm at work. I feel like I'm dialed in. I'm in this place where I'm thriving. So when I have to leave that, to get better, you then have all those thoughts come to your head like, are they talking about me? Do they think I'm faking? Do they think this? Do they think that? Because you spend so much time trying to suck it up or you spend so much time trying to be your best there that when you need help and when you are hurt, you think that the world is now turning on you and you're letting people down, which is the exact opposite. I was saying this morning on the phone, like, Guys that I haven't spoke to in months are calling me and saying, hey, man, like we miss you. We hope you're getting better. And it just reaffirms that what we're doing as human beings is the right thing. It just reaffirms that those judgments that you have against yourself aren't entirely true and that people aren't actually saying that about you. They're thinking the exact opposite. They want you to get better because you are an integral part of that family it's not team. This The fire service is not team-based work. It's not paramilitary. It's not all the things that we have said over the last 50 years or whatever. It's a family, and it's bigger than all of those other things. And you can be yourself when you're with your family, and you can be hurt, and you can be struggling, and you can do those things with this family, and they're not going to judge you. You're judging yourself. And that that's a hard thing for people to understand. Like I could tell you my deepest, darkest secrets 
not because we have good conversation on a podcast. I could tell you my deepest, darkest secret, Scott, because we're firemen. And that is one of the hardest things for us to realize is that we're not being judged by our peers. It's actually the complete opposite, right? So We know it's a very small majority of people that are abusing the system and that are off for the wrong reasons, just like it's a small group of people, maybe the same people that were in it for the wrong reasons to start. Do you think it's a more common problem that we stay at work too long when we shouldn't? Not just as in like ending the career, you know, like you were saying you were afraid of now, but just in general with illness, with physical pains that we're not addressing them, being honest with them early enough that we stay there too long and that's harmful? Yes, but it's not going to change. That's all part of it. That's the culture. Even the negative, that's the negative part of the culture, but that's the culture. When COVID was a big thing and I remember when work came out and they're like, even if you have a sniffle, you need to stay home. And I had like, I had a cold. I didn't have COVID, but I had a cold and I was like staying home and I've never felt more guilty in my life. And where I come from in the military, you couldn't just call in sick. You would have to go to a doctor, get a chit, take it to your boss that same day. And then they would let you go home. So I always felt, I still do it, and my platoon chief probably just rolls his eyes every time. But when I call in sick, I always, I, even last night, I'm like, hey, Tim, just wanted to let you know I've got my neurologist on Wednesday, and this is really, like, I'm, like, laying it out, and he's going just, in his mind, he's going, just shut, just just come back to work. I've got stuff ready. on you the know? go. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to make pizza right now or whatever he's doing. But we do that because there are people that are, off for the wrong reasons. But I think the majority of us, yeah, we stay too long. We don't listen to our bodies. It's your shoulder or it's your, it's a pulled muscle or it's this, we'll be fine. I'll work through it. I'll, I'll, I'll get through it. And then you're really hurt and it's too late, which is my scenario right now. I don't think those people have wrecked it. I don't think that the people that take advantage of the system have wrecked it for us. I think anybody that loves what they do feels guilty to go home or to stay home. I don't know. You joke about it. I was, are you coming to work Sunday? Mm, maybe. We'll see. It's nice weather, but you're always there. Right, right. You know? <laughs> so. I'm going to put you on the spot here, but I think you're the person to answer this question. If you were going to write a love letter to the fire service, what would you say? Thank you. I, it's my entire life, man. It is the one relationship I've had where it's been unconditional love from the beginning. And it's It's never been hard, but yet the hardest things I have ever done are here. You can't say anything other than thank you. Thank you to this community that we're a part of and and this family that I'm a member of. And and thank you for showing me that life is challenging. And thank you for showing me that we have a, a higher purpose in this world as firefighters. You know, thank you for, thank you for, Showing me that I can be afraid of things, man. Like you and anybody else, we're not afraid of almost dying until two days after we almost died. Like I almost, I had a roof collapse. It was through the roof of the first house and it jumped to the second house, got through the roof and we were upstairs and I was with a really experienced captain. And at the time, the other backseater with me wasn't, didn't have that much experience, but he grew up, his dad was a district in Toronto, a well-respected one. He's been around the fire service his entire life. So hard worker, great guy. Still work together today. His name's Dan Halls. We were on the second floor of the structure and you could just hear the roof getting ready to, it was done. So I said to Dan and Tony, we got to go because I was at the back. And as we went down the stairs, the roof collapsed in behind our heads. 
And we went back in and we saved because the owner of the house's grandfather was a retired Toronto fireman and a veteran. So we went in and saved their medals and stuff like that. But I remember two days after that going, oh shit, like two or three seconds ago, I guess I could have ate it and it didn't matter to me. And I owe that. That's just another thank you. Thank you for showing me that I'm not invincible and that what I'm doing has purpose. Thank you for letting me fulfill my dreams. Just because you dream of being a firefighter doesn't mean you're going to be a firefighter. And I've gotten that opportunity. I'm so thankful to the fire service. It's everything, man, to me. It really is. I still get excited. I live right down the road from a station, uh, Peterborough Station, and I still get excited when the truck goes by lights and sirens. Thank you. All I could say to the fire service is thank you. Love, Wayne. Mediocrely yours, Wayne. <laughs> world's okayest <laughs> firefighter. World's, world's ish, most ish firefighter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one, man. Why don't we end it on that? I'm deeply grateful for your time and this energy you brought today. Scott, it's the perfect time because I'm struggling in the job right now. Wondering if I leave the department and I go somewhere else and try to be a chief training officer or a training officer somewhere. And I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to leave the trucks. And I'm afraid because my mental health is challenged due to my injury that I know I'm going to get better at. But for the last year, two years, I've been struggling in our job because I love it so much, but I'm not happy because I'm hurt. And I was talking to Alex this morning just before we went on. And I said, I'm doing a podcast this morning, but it's a, it's a first responder. It's a firefighter podcast. And I've never been more excited because I want to talk about fire again. I want to reignite that fire inside me. So I, I, I really appreciate this opportunity, man. And I would love to come back on any time or, or whatever. It's been really great. You and I need to, we need to stay connected. Yes. So. I was going to say, especially now, like I know we just did a couple hours here, but if you're in this place... Well, it doesn't matter what place you're in, man. You just I know you have a lot of support in your life, but just add me add me to the list. You just call me. Cuz I know you're involved in this a little bit. I've actually spoke to a few people that listen to your podcast that are firefighters, and I would love to start speaking to departments and getting my name out there more and kind of focusing on that part of the mental health world within our industry. So, awesome. Keep me in mind if you hear of any opportunities. I will. All right, brother. Be good. Enjoy your day. Take care. Talk to you soon.